0: Marty Hott is a director of Ruby Central, a nonprofit dedicated to the support and advocacy of the worldwide Ruby community. Ruby Central also hosts the RubyConf and RailsConf software conferences. Marty, welcome to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Great, thanks. It's nice to be here.
0: So you've been a software engineer for over 15 years. When did you start working with Ruby? Uh, I started in 2005.
1: That was the official time. Yes. And uh, I got into that actually through JavaScript because I was doing more advanced UI work and that was sort of the emergence of sort of the new uh, JavaScript uh, frameworks. And I found a prototype in Scriptaculous. And as I was diving into that, I saw all these references to Rails. But I'm like, what is Rails? And then I, then I found that and was like, oh, this is interesting. Started playing with that. I'd been doing Java before that spring and Things like that, and uh, so it was. I was like, "This is very cool. I like this."
0: <laughs> so I had a similar uh, transformation from doing a Spring Java development to Ruby on Rails. What were the What were the things that stood out to you that was the distinguished Ruby on Rails from the Spring Java world?
1: Well, just uh, just less boilerplate, less uh, things, you, hoops you had to jump through. I mean, this was also the time of EJBs, and it was pretty painful. Now, now, Spring was a move away from that, but it's still, I mean, you still had to do what the XML sit-ups, you know, there's so much configuration. And the thing that struck me about Ruby was as I started to write with it, um, I was struck by how often things just worked or the thing that felt intuitive that I wanted to do, uh, was actually the right way to do it. And it worked right away, and that was very pleasing. And uh, it was a little tough leading the IDE because I had gotten used to the IDE, though as bloated as it was, doing so many things for me, going back to a lightweight text editor where I actually have to type everything out and a little code completion. But, I mean, you you can't, you're not doing huge refactorings in an IDE. Uh, It actually was nice because then I could just think more about the code I'm writing, as opposed to how do I get the IDE to generate stuff for me.
0: So was there anything that hooked you to Ruby itself, or was it just the framework around it, Ruby on Rails? Well, I liked Ruby a lot as a
1: language itself, too. And um, I hadn't done any functional programming before that point, and the use of lambdas and the dynamic elements of Ruby was fairly new. I mean, I'd done a little bit of Perl, but it was a very different experience with the very little Perl i worked with. And so from, you know, Java, which was very uh, strict and, you know, you had to, you, you couldn't change things as easily, but in Ruby, you could. And I know Python, you certainly could do these things as well, but I hadn't really done much with Python at that point. And I was just very uh, pleased with that. I really liked the notion of using blocks um, to do uh, a lot of things that I wanted to do in Java. And all of a sudden, all these patterns I would learned to do things in Java were no longer necessary because they're just baked in to how you program in Ruby and other dynamic languages like that. But since that was my first experience with it, that was very very taken with it. And, of course, that led me to wanting to learn about this because it's so different and new from what I had been doing that I started seeking other people out that that were doing Ruby or were interested in Ruby. And uh, that's actually what led me to start doing the community thing uh, because I started the Boulder Ruby group a user group, a monthly user group, back in um, January 2006. So it was late 2005 that I started getting that going. And January is our first meeting.
0: Yeah. So let's talk some about that story. I-, I saw a talk where you mentioned moving out of Kansas to Colorado and looking for this community because you knew nobody. Can you briefly describe that story?
1: Sure. Sure. So um, I had. My uh, family and I had discussed and we decided that we wanted to move to Colorado from Kansas. Uh, we really liked the area and we we were tired of Kansas and just wanting something different, something a little more exciting for our family. And also, I was looking for sort of the sweet spot of a great place for my kids to grow up you know, uh, great, um, fun, recreational-type activities, uh, closer at hand, which we love the mountains, so that was perfect. But also I wanted a good tech community so that I'd have more options. It was, at that point in time, I mean, it was getting okay at that point because that was like 2004, Um, but the, you know, just a few years from that uh, earlier, you know, the market was pretty rough and I was still, at that point, you know, submitting resumes, you know, for a job position where there might be a hundred people applying and just hoping I could get an interview. And and I talked to some people and they said, you know, Marty, you you should really network more because you can get around that. I'm like, okay, you know, maybe I should do that. So when we made the the leap to move out to Colorado, we actually didn't have a job lined up or anything. And I decided I was going to move out here. And um, like a month or maybe a few weeks after I had made the intention that we're going to move out here, uh, one of my friends um, back in Kansas approached me and said, Marty, we're starting this new um, company and we're going to build this uh, video service in Java. And um, it's going to be, we're going to be doing extreme programming. So you'll be one of four people on the team. You know, I want you to be part of it. I'm like, well, that's great. But I'm moving to Colorado, so I can't <laughs> stay, you know, even as great as it sounds. And it was probably, the, it was definitely the best job offer I'd ever been given. And it was just given to me. Like, we, I, you know, I know you, Marty, and I really want you to be on this team. And I was just flattered, but I'm like, gosh, you know, I, we've committed to moving, so, you know, it's too bad. And he's like, well, what if, what if you stay a little bit longer and then you can move out to Colorado and work remote? And I'm like, ooh, well, that sounds really good because that accomplishes both. I get this cool job as well as I get to move to Colorado. And so that's how that started. Um, but that got us out to Colorado, but it didn't change the fact that I didn't know anyone out here. And, you know, I know uh, that jobs come and go. Companies, especially startups, can go under at any point in time. I'd seen that previously, and I knew not to trust that. Um, and so I still knew I had to do the networking piece. And, uh, so when I got here, I started networking and I, and the first thing I did was go to Java user groups and, uh, the Boulder jug specifically, and it was okay. It was pretty large and I started talking to people, but, um, you know, it, it was, it wasn't the, it wasn't a great vibe. I mean, it was okay, but I mean, it, I was hoping for more connection with people, but, People would just kind of stand around awkwardly and, you know, there'd be presentations. And I met a few people, but it, was, it wasn't, um, they weren't as, as friendly as I would have liked. But that's okay. Um, and so as I started getting into Ruby, I started to look, hey, is there anyone doing Ruby here? And there was like one Linux users group and, that met at this uh, cafe, um, this coffee shop in South Boulder that I went to. And I met another Rubyist there. And they had sort of like, Rubius would come here. But it wasn't actually a Ruby meeting at all. It was totally just about Linux. And that was cool. Uh, and It was kind of like hacking around. Uh, but then um, but then I met Jeremy Heingartner. And he and I would start talking. And he's like, oh, yeah, there's a few other Rubyists in the area. And it's kind of like, oh, cool. And so I started getting introductions to all these people. And Chad Fowler had also moved into the area not too uh, recently and so there was like four of us or five of us that, that said hey we should start something and I said I'll I'll get it going I'll get it organized I just want to lean on you guys who know what you're actually doing in Ruby to speak at it and you know be, bring other people in and it just took off it was definitely the right time you know we had like 30 people at our first meeting it was at a bar it was a terrible place to meet was <laughs> so loud but it was really cool and then like a the company uh, stepped forward and said hey Marty we had this space that we would love to host the meeting and we'd, be, we'd buy pizza and beer and stuff. And we're like, oh, that's great. Well, this makes my job a lot easier. So it just took off. And, and I think within two years, we had such solid membership of just regulars coming and people volunteering to speak that it wasn't too hard. And it kind of took on a life of its own.
0: So it sounds like very early on, you realized that the culture that surrounded Rubyists was much different than that uh kind of uh, culture that you referred to encountering at the Java users group. Right.
1: I don't I don't think I knew that right away though. Um
0: Well, I guess cuz your group was so small. <laughs>
1: right, and and it could be that uh, I'm a very friendly person, so maybe because I started the meeting and I was being very friendly that people just naturally uh, started being friendly too. Like, Oh yeah, we socialize here. Of course. We're at a bar or like, Oh, this is her first meetup. And you know, we're having this time where we're networking and chatting and we're all so excited because the people that came out to it, you know, were really pumped to say, Oh cool. There's this thing talking about Ruby. And I think also just about that time, there was like a rail studio that had um, by I think pragmatic studio, perhaps put it on. that just happened in Denver. So, this also started another group in, in Denver that was, uh, for Rails called Derailed. And so, anyway, the, and then a number of them came up to our meeting as well, which was pretty close to Boulder. We actually were in Boulder proper. We were, um, you know, in a, in a suburb between Denver and Boulder. Uh, but, but in any anyway, event, there is, there's a lot more excitement. So, I didn't really know, I think until I went to RailsConf and RubyConf that year, that I realized that, it wasn't unique to our user group, that, that people were just a lot nicer, a lot more open. And, and it also turned out that RubyConf that year was in Denver. So it made it really easy for me to go to that. Uh, it wasn't so much of a stretch. And I was just shocked by, it. oh, wow. It's like, I kind of like the feel of my user group, only it's got like 400 people in it. So I was like, this is great. This is really cool. So yeah, I think at that point, I realized there's something here that was different and I really liked
0: it. So He's what is it? What is it that leads to these Ruby communities, these Ruby user groups having a different ethos than the Java user groups?
1: Well, that's an excellent question. And I have a few guesses as to why. There's a phrase that we have in the Ruby community called minus one, which means uh Matt's is nice and so we are nice, and Matt's is the, the creator of Ruby. And Matt is a very nice individual. And I think uh, the idea behind this phrase is that because he created Ruby for a certain purpose, you know, to have joy of programming, to make it easier on programmers and to make a better language that he wanted to work in, um, work with and have others use, um, sort of just permeated the people that were drawn to it, especially once it came over to the English speaking world in um, like 2000, 2001, that... Uh, that happened. Also, I think because Dave Thomas, who is sort of credited with bringing it over to the English-speaking world, also was, you know, that's a pragmatic programmer. So he had this idea of, you know, giving back and being very generous and nice and all that. And I think the people that are drawn to it were also more progressive sort of programmers. So these aren't your rank and file. We're just nine to five kind of programmers that, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that, but they're they're fine settling for, so is just what I'm doing. This is my job. I'm not interested in, you know, stretching or learning or, you know, meeting other people. I'm just, this is just a job. Whereas I think the initial people that are drawn to it, felt it was so different. And they wanted to, they were already on this path of, you know, self learning and getting better. And, um, and I know Chad Fowler was part of that. And, and Chad also, I think, you know, uh, embodies a lot of that himself, uh, where he's giving back, he's trying to help other people get better. And so I think because that had been established in the community early on, and then the user groups also kind of did that. You know, CLRB and others—they were really uh, beating the drum of, of that sort of uh, vibe. That it just spread, and people knew, like almost like when you came into the community, you saw how people were behaving. You're like, oh, oh, oh good, I can be this way here, mm. and and I think it just permeates and just keeps going on from there. And um, that's, whereas that's Java, what it is.
0: Java maybe feels like uh as opposed to to Matt's control or uh you know um personifying Ruby there's not really a personification of Java it's just kind of like big hulking corporate entities that you think of when you right. think of Java programming
1: yeah i mean i think so i mean you have factions groups that are doing cool things that don't have that vibe but you also have large sort of standards bodies you know creating things and and it's very corporate or very heavy. And I mean, I think that sort of just sort of go, ripples out into all aspects of the language and its community and its frameworks and mm-hmm. all that. And the other thing is that, um, that Ruby is very, very open source, right? I don't know any Ruby that's not open source that anyone even uses. So I think because uh, that also plays into it where, hey, we can give back by you know, contributing to this library or we could write our own library and share it with others and other people can help us. And then it becomes maybe the de facto standard in the community. And so there's a more giving sense with others because it's not something that's controlled by a corporate entity or isn't heavy uh, because there's some standards body that's trying to control things. And and that's saying that those things are bad at all. It's just that that wasn't a thing because, you know, back then people were like, Ruby's a toy, you know, like this is, this is just kind of neat, but, but it turns out that there, there are a lot of properties about Ruby and, and its community that made creating great libraries and frameworks could emerge from it, very fast, very like, hey, let's change how we do this, like Rails. I mean, you think about that. David's idea there is like he, he saw all these ways of doing building web apps that were smarter than what everyone else was doing. and you know, he borrowed ideas from everywhere. But he could do that. He could change it and he could create it in Ruby and it would move fast and people were very drawn to that. Anyway, I think these all kind of play, play into the factor that factor into how the community was more open and friendly and giving back. And yeah, I think, yeah. I think that's...
0: So, so, so let's talk about how your role within the community has developed. Um Could you talk about Ruby Central and how Ruby Central got started and what the goal of it is?
1: Right. So the early history, which I wasn't around for, but what I've heard um, from others, was that it was started uh, pretty early on after RubyConf. I don't think it was started before the first RubyConf, which was 2001. Um, But it was started pretty early on. It's just an organization to manage the conference and the conference was very small. I think the first year was like 30 some odd people. So it wasn't a very large thing, but they realized they needed some, some sort of structure entity that actually would, you know, organize the conference. And, um, uh, the original members, I think Dave might've been an original member, but there the three members that were, that were basically started and ran it for the longest time. That would be David Black, Chad Fowler and Rich Kilmer. And the three of them ran it um, for a long, long time. And I think, I'm trying to remember what year it was, maybe 2009 or 10, around there. Uh, you know, they had been doing it for, what, eight years at that point? Okay. They started to transition it to, um, to some others in the community to start running that. And Phoenix, uh, Ben Schofield came on, and then I came on as the third director after that, um, basically David's replacement. Uh, but but that's sort, of, that's sort of that early history. Uh, the uh, the purpose of the um, organization is a nonprofit, It's a five hundred one c three nonprofit organization, and its job is to promote community and basically run the two conferences. It originally was RubyConf, but eventually we we uh, we created RailsConf and ran that. And- so
0: so I'd, I'd like to get an idea of why conferences are so important like I I I listened to a quote that you said Um, you you said you intended your first developer conference eight years after you started writing code and and you really made a point to lament this you said um, you know you described this as as having waited far too long to attend a conference how early in their careers should people attend conferences and what is the what is the value that you get out of attending a conference
1: well I think they should do it right away um even if they're uh, not sure they want to um, become a programmer, I think it's worth doing. Now, I would the caveat I'd say at that is is pick a local conference that isn't going to cost you a ton of money. I would I don't I wouldn't suggest you buy a plane ticket and fly to some city across the, the country and you know, pay $400 or something for a ticket if you're not really sure. But the reason why I think it's beneficial to developers to experience this, whether you're brand new or whether you've been programming for five, 10, whatever years, is that it opens your mind to working collaboratively and seeing things differently. I mean, there of course, there's the talks. And now... In this day and age, you can, uh, a lot of talks are recorded and you can just watch them for free. And that's that's great. But um, that's only one aspect. There's that aspect, right? So you can learn quite a bit from, from attending the talks. But, of course, after the talk, you should be talking to people if you're interested in this topic. So, like, you might go up front to the room and you might ask some questions of the speaker. Or, and there's invariably, usually there is a group of people that do this. And there are fascinating conversations happening there because there, maybe they're a question that someone didn't want to ask generally, you know, while the session was going on or at the very end when they ask for questions, maybe it's something they wish want to have more personal conversation with. But there, these happen. And so that's really pretty cool. So if there's, you know, I don't know, some technique or library or thing that you're interested in that there's a talk on, you can go and have that conversation. And that's very cool.
0: How much knowledge do you get at a conference that – transfers back to the work that you're doing on a day to day basis? Or, or is the value of a conference more to just meet people and network and gain disparate ideas that may help you further on in your job?
1: Well, I, that's an excellent question. I think it, it varies. So I think that meeting people is really important. And it's uncomfortable for some that are more introverted, but it, it's still good to do. And the thing is, is that you can pick up new ideas or new ways of working or have interesting conversations where you talk about a problem that you've sort of been tackling at work. And you'd be surprised because here you are with, if it's, you know, like RubyConf you're 800 or so people that are very like-minded. And you can, you may not know them, but you actually have a lot already in common with these other people. And you can have those conversations. And the thing is, because of at least with developer centric conferences which is what recon for railsconf are and there are many others like this that that you're all here to learn about being a better developer or how to use Ruby better and and because of that people are really happy to chat and offer advice or you know kind of lament about some problem that yeah yeah we have that all the time too and we're still trying to figure it out but It is, um, every time I've gone to a conference, pretty much every time there's always been some new idea or some new way of working that I have been exposed to, whether it was watching a session that I wanted to see, or whether it was in the hallway track, which is that, that in between time between sessions where you're talking with people, hanging out at the snack table or whatever, or, um, whatnot. And these ideas—they happen as long as you're open to talking to other people and listening. And sometimes you can just eavesdrop. And, you know, you can go go to the end of a session where the speaker is talking with a bunch of other people, and you can just hang out and listen, and you'll get ideas. And you'll be like, "Wow!" Or it might be something as straightforward as there's a talk on this new like GraphQL or something that's new you haven't heard about. And you know, you read the abstract and you're like, that sounds like that might be useful to my organization or to my project. Mm-hmm. And you go to it, and it's confirmed. And you're like, wow, this is great. I'm glad that I now got exposed to it. And you wouldn't necessarily know to go and look for this. I mean, would you Google that? Probably not. But but because you heard people talking about it, or because you're looking through the program, and you read the abstract, and you're like, oh, this looks interesting. I got to do something this hour or whatever. Oh, this talk looks great. So I'll go to this talk. That, that happens. And I think until you've experienced that, um, you're not you're missing out, basically. And I, I think it's worth every developer to experience that at least once. You might decide that you didn't plug in, you didn't get the sort of benefit that you thought you would get. But if, until you try, you don't know. And that's a thing where I look at eight years where I was just doing the Java thing and just following along. And I learned stuff. But Boy, once I started going to conferences, that just got accelerated big time. Like I learned so much. I got to meet interesting people and I was inspired by them or like, gosh, I really like how that person or how she was. So so when you say that
0: got accelerated, do you mean you got exposed to new ideas and you started pursuing those ideas of your own volition or was there just like breakthroughs that you didn't get exposed to day to day in your kind of Java world or...
1: Yeah, all of that, really. And sometimes there's there's just a general level of like uh, excitement and my passions have been renewed and and I'm ready. I really this thing I've been putting off. I'm going to go ahead and jump on it, and knock it out. Or or there's also like the oh, no, I'm going to the conference in a few weeks. I promised some people that we had talked about this one thing. So I better do the work I said I would do and get putting off so that it's done. And then I show up and we can have that conversation I can show off this new thing I'm doing or this new library or whatever. And I think that that there's all those things are true and they do happen. And, and certainly I noticed after going to those conferences that it it was like two, four times faster and how quickly I was absorbing things and how excited I was about stuff. And it just all, you know, once you get that higher level energy, it's going to feed on itself and it's going to keep going.
0: I think another thing that's really useful for developers, and I, this is something that has helped me from doing the podcast, is like when you work with the same technologies every day, uh, you develop. I mean, in my experience, at least, you develop kind of a paranoia of of uh, you know locking horns with another new technology. And if you make a practice um, of bombarding yourself with new technologies on on a on a um, on a regular basis whether it's through conferences or just like reading about random stuff online it really helps break down that fear of of jumping on a new technology and the thing is like the you know being able being positioned to jump on new technologies is so important as a software engineer like if you, see, if, you if you see an opportunity for a new technology and you say that is something that i need to learn you should be able to to jump on it quickly and without fear and uh, and I think like attending these conferences or getting exposed to new types of technologies in some other fashion um, is just like absolutely necessary to, to to um to to break down that comfort zone problem. Um, yeah, I
1: would I would agree with that. It's I mean, I mean seriously, like think back five years even and what that we were doing 5 years ago do you still do today exactly <laughs> and you know like there there are certainly things that you do and you know you know it, it certainly like, if you're looking at ruby then yeah you still program ruby in probably the same way but there's a lot of different Parts of the ecosystem have changed. They're constantly changing. So you know, if I hadn't learned anything the last 15 years, boy, that would have really sucked. If I was programming servlets, you know, uh-huh. as I was back in the late nineties, really. So there's just so many improvements and like, hey, let's try it this way. Let's let's use this approach in how we talk to servers or how we build code on a client or whatever it might be. And if you're not open to that, you're going to be left behind.
0: Yeah. And the thing is,
1: if you if you're if you're letting the fear of trying something new stop you, then well, that's something you need to overcome because it's, it's, it's only going to hurt you more if you don't just do it. And I think if you have a deliberate practice of like the, you know, new programming language every year or just something new every year, then even if you like give yourself the permission, say, I am not going to try and make anything practical of this. I'm going to learn Elm just to learn Elm because I think it's really (laughs) cool or whatever. not like I have to have, a valid business case use for this thing that is, you know, makes it worth my time to learn. But no, like just learn it. Like go and learn Elixir and learn how you can do pattern matching in that or whatever it might be. Because whether or not you actually use it in a production app in the next six months doesn't really matter. Being exposed to it in maybe a different way of programming or a different way of thinking is worth the cost of admission.
0: Yeah. You know, another thing that that kind of reminds me, like another thing I felt uh, when I moved from the Java world and started building some Rails apps, was this uh, this sense that you know, um, as a Java developer, uh, in my experience at least, you you um, you tend to to pigeonhole yourself as a quote back end developer, and the the. The, the truth of that is that it's kind of a tragedy because like when you when you pigeonhole yourself that way you decisively choose not to engage with whatever you've defined the front end as um and and what i like about rails is it kind of like necessitates being whatever full stack means um and uh, and it's like i think that's actually the way to learn to program um like i don't think you can just be uh, this back end person that's like totally relegated and does and doesn't understand the the nature of the front end, especially because like the nature of the front end uh, and what the back end is and the middle end and whatever these things they're ch- they're like really changing quickly, um, and the, even the front end is like becoming so much more complex and back end look looking like I mean it's like these you know like node middleware uh, type of stuff. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's something I I really valued about my, my Ruby experience, my Rails experience in contrast with my backend Java experience. Um, I don't know if that, if that resonates with you as well.
1: Yeah, I, I think, I think so. The, the nice thing about Rails compared to when I was doing Java stuff was that it was so easy to build something full stack. You know, if you were to take a, a slice of your application from, you know, the moment a, Client interacts on a web or whatever, down to it, interacting with the database or some back-end service, that you can quickly write that slice so fast and you can touch all the parts and you can make it more complex on any side, any aspect of the application, you know, whether it's middleware, whether it's back-end processing or something like that report type stuff, or whether it's very front-end heavy, you know, maybe it's very dynamic UI you know, where you're, you know, like a, um, you know, like an Ember or something like that, or React or something like that, you know, you can, you can totally do all that, but it's so easy to go from, from, you know, the beginning the front end all the way to the back end that, that you have no excuse. Whereas in Java, it was, you know, there was so much you had to do (laughs) that it's like, gosh, to do a slice would be painful where it is so easy to say, okay, I'm just going to be doing, you know, um, servlets, or I'm just going to be, you know, interfacing with this, you know, the ORM or something like that. And, you know, I'll let some other group handle that component or something like that. And usually also those projects were a lot bigger. So your teams got chopped up and you didn't get to work on a small app where you kind of did everything, which is totally what, you know, Rails allowed you to do. So I think think that's definitely true.
0: Yeah, so let's talk some more about the... The, the nature of conferences and particularly how the nature of conferences reflects and enables the community of uh, of, of particular uh, programming areas. So like Ruby for example, you've said that the world needs more programmers and as a reflection of this, the Ruby community also needs more programmers. So how can a community help this problem? How can a community, Learn how to grow itself, and also, I guess, how can how can the the, the programmer community at large uh, encourage uh, a larger influx of programmers?
1: Well, I mean, I think the first the first thing that comes to mind is we need to make uh, the community very welcoming, make our conferences, our events very welcoming, and certainly, um, at Ruby Central, we've we've definitely done that. I think we've seen, you know, it's unscientific, but with a show of hands. At our conferences, we always ask in the very very beginning, you know, show, show of hands, who is at RubyConf or RailsConf for the first time? And you know, lately, it's been pretty much half the the audience, and it, it just floors me, And it, not the way it used to be. Um, so we do have, we're seeing quite an influx of, of, I wouldn't say new programmers, because they could be, you know, people that have been programming in a while, but they finally show up to a conference, and I think that's great, um, because then that's just showing you new people are coming in. Uh, we do. We are seeing a lot of new programmers coming in. Uh, there, of course, we've. we've um, I mean, you've talked about the rise of the boot camps, and they're just everywhere. And there are people that are wanting to get into this. And I think, you know, back to my original comment that we need more programmers. The thing is, is there's just so much to do. There's mm-hmm. so many projects that are starting, and so many businesses that are finally coming around to I need to have this sort of solution, or there's a better way to do something that has been done traditionally in some other way that now software can disrupt or can just change how that's done. And there's just so much demand. And the thing is, of course, most of the demand is we want seniors or we want people who are experienced. And I understand why they want that, but that doesn't help somebody who's getting in. And so, I think there's there's a couple things that, that we can do that will make it all a bit easier. So the first part I mentioned is being welcoming, and you know certainly we have policies that are that way. But also we we create content and we use language that makes it very clear that hey, if you're brand new to Ruby, great, come on down. We're, we've got you know sessions that are that are meant for you. You it won't be scary. Uh, we have this thing called the Opportunity Scholarship that, that I started at Rocky Mountain Ruby, my own conference that I ran for a number of years in Boulder, that was about getting people an opportunity to come to the conference in a guided sense. So they get a guide and they get to, so it's not as scary because it can be scary to show up. You don't know anybody and there's two, 300 or at RailsConf or RubyConf, you know, 900, 1500 people that are there and you're like, oh, wow, I I don't know. I can't do this. I don't know what to do. There's a sea of people and (laughs) I totally don't want to talk to any of them. I'm so nervous. So the whole idea of this guide thing is that, hey, look, here you've met a friend, a guide that's going to be helping you go around the conference and totally makes it, um, it, it's acceptable to ask dumb questions or ask any sort of questions, get recommendations on what you should do. If it's like a multi-track conference where you should go and maybe get introductions to other people that will really help you. And so that was my original idea. And all these things are about making the conference experience better for someone who's new. So it's not an insiders club or anything like that. It's very welcoming. Um, but also that they make sure they have a really good experience while they're there. So that, you know, the conference is really well run and it's, um, they feel safe and included, uh, and welcomed as they come to the conference. And, uh, all that kind of plays a part to, after they're done with the conference, I'll be like, yeah, this is great. I love this conference. and I feel like I'm in the right place to be a programmer and I'm going to feel uh, encouraged to get better and become a better programmer. And eventually they'll be the seniors, right, that will be, um, you know, bringing in new people.
0: So I also feel like there's a, um, a certain, like, uh, process to founding a community and like, uh, building a community. So like software engineering daily, for example, this podcast, um, you know, we're, we're trying to build, uh, you know, a larger community. Um, we're trying to like, you know, fill this, this gap of resources that help educate and inform developers on technical software topics. Um, and you know, it's, it's been, it's been a hurdle to, Find, find our way into the community and, and get people to engage with us and, uh, and communicate closely. So, I mean, do you have any best practices? And I'm sure this would also appeal to people who are thinking of starting meetups somewhere, uh, like, you know, a JavaScript meetup in Uzbekistan or something. <laughs> um, you know, how, how do you become more embedded within existing communities? And how do you find your niche and build a community?
1: Well, let's see. So I I guess the first thing is, um, you uh, generally people will, um, they'll come out for something if there's something to come out for. So, I mean, when you're starting a meetup or when you're, you're creating content that you want people to kind of check out, the first thing is make sure there's something for them to go to. And so like, if you're starting a meetup, you know, you make sure you have some presentations that are interesting to people that you would reach out to. And, and then of course, there's just some logistics aspects of running a meetup so that, you know, it doesn't suck essentially, you know, like, you know, they, they, they know they're not confused They know how to get there. Uh, maybe there's food. doesn't have to be food, um, but you know, if there's food, you know, make that be known, um, you know, you know, Communicate what the format is, so if it's going to be more of a hacking kind of experience, that's great, um, but make sure it's uh, it's communicated and, and create your space, so, you know, where are you meeting, is it good for the kind of format of the meeting that you're going to do, um, and I think a, a lot of that, um, you know, when you think about what you want to try and create. Um, you know have you experienced that yourselves do you know anybody else who's doing a meetup like that or have you even attended meetups? hopefully you have so you have a sense of hey I want this one meetup and I like these things I didn't like those things but it, but a lot of it comes down to okay what are you trying to accomplish what's the format you want you know try to do a little bit of research so you know what you should be doing for that format and then execute on it but then the other piece is that you have to do outreach and so it's pretty easy for us to talk in our own circles, but how do you get outside of the circles that you already have? And um, there are different strategies for that. uh, But a lot of times, it's just going out and networking. You know, where are the developers? Maybe they're you know go to maybe your local college or go to your boot camp. So the the boot camps are really easy, of course. But maybe go to other uh, meetups and start talking about what you're doing. The other thing is, of course, using social media um it is great um to, to spread the word as well uh, maybe go to businesses in the community that you know have programmers that either are working in that language or might be open to that sort of thing uh, and then again as you do this outreach as long as there's something for them to go to and you communicate it and you kind of in, you make it clear that there's something happening and it's you know you welcome them you want them to come to it then then it'll start happening and of course as as you start to have these meetups and, you know, you want to start small. I mean, don't, don't expect that you're going to get 60 or a hundred people to show up right away, but you know, uh, you know, as you get people to come out, have them spread the word too. And if it's a good experience, word of mouth is just going to work on that. Um, so I think, I, I don't know about the podcast piece because I don't, I haven't had experience trying <laughs> to do that piece, but but I think from a meetup standpoint that that works, uh, I certainly know from like RubyConf and Rails Comp standpoint, we we don't really do any marketing. I mean, we 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 just create information, we, you know, put it on our website. We, we use social media, and we just let the community at large spread the word. And...
0: Yeah, well, I mean, th- one advantage is that programmers are like pretty social media savvy, and they'll aggressively share stuff. Um, and and so yeah, I mean, you know the 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 thing with the podcast like it's it's actually been really really enjoyable to feel like i am like helping to build a community um like we've we have a slack channel um and oh, also sure. if anybody's listening i encourage them to go to softwareengineeringdaily.com and join the slack channel um you know we have some great conversations on there it's really enjoyable um and i think the same would probably be true uh, for anybody out there who's thinking about starting a meetup, um, you know, or 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 some other type of in-person uh, event, I think it's just really rewarding and probably like really fun, and there's like no downside risk. So um, anyway, I encourage people to try that. Um, so let's let's talk about some more technical stuff. Um, okay. Uh, with JavaScript, JavaScript is kind of emerging as uh the the leading language. It's kind of taking over in terms of sheer volume. if you look at GitHub repositories, I think JavaScript kind of dominates. So I'm curious what you think this, how you think this impacts Ruby on Rails. Like, um, you know, are people sort of saying, you know, I need to get off of you know people who have been programming in Ruby on Rails for a long time? Are they saying I need to move off of Ruby on Rails because it's because it's uh, falling by the wayside. I need to move to full stack JavaScript. Um, and what do you think about this?
1: That's a good question. Um, <clears throat> so certainly the um, Ruby on Rails as being the cool kid around <laughs> has definitely passed. We've seen a shift, but it's not it's not Java yet. It's it's no, it's, no, not, it's Spring. not Java. And i don't I don't honestly think it'll become Java because the reasons it made Ruby and Ruby and Rails so popular to begin with um, the fat thing is passed for sure. but the productivity, the just the pleasure of working in it um,
0: that's yeah all, and to to be clear, I think like spinning up a so yeah spinning up a rails application is still much easier than like spinning up a the equivalent in Express or whatever you use. Right,
1: and I I think that um, certainly JavaScript. There's a reason why it's very popular. Uh, the fact that it it's really the only show in town on the browser, and will be for quite some time. I mean, you have the the different languages that transpile into uh, into JavaScript. So you know, like closure script or Elm or whatnot, and that's and that's great. I mean, that's great to see that you have different options. And certainly with ES6 coming out, that you know we now can write. JavaScript in not such painful ways. Cause, you know, I certainly remember JavaScript back, you know, in the nineties and the early aughts where it was pretty rough. I mean, it was, it was brutal. Um, and there's a, you kind of wanted to do very little in JavaScript it's gotten so much better. And certainly there's a lot of, uh, new things, new ways of working, uh, that are constantly coming out. And certainly JavaScript is leading the way that way. And I, I don't, I mean, I think it's all good. Um, <coughs> You know the uh, Rails and Ruby. There's still a ton of people using it. I think I don't think that, that aspect is is decreasing. I think there's a lot more people writing code out there, so it's it's certainly increasing. And you you do have a lot of people that do uh JavaScript with a Ruby, right? I mean you've got total a ton of front ends that you can choose from, whether it's just vanilla JavaScript as it were, or jQuery or whatnot, or whether you go into something like Angular or React or you know Ember or something like that. They there's still lots of groups that are, you know, have those front ends with a, a rails backend and, and you have other people moving on to other things like they're now working in Clojure or they're working in Elixir or they're and then certainly working in node. Um, and there's a lot, there's, it makes a lot of sense. If you're, if you're only going to get good at one language, get good at JavaScript and do node in the backend and you have your front end with JavaScript. And I, I think it's fine. Um, I think for most of us that have been programming longer, it's like, well, why are you limiting yourself to one language? Like wouldn't you want to choose the right tool at for your project based on the context of things? And I think that's still important. And so there's still a lot of people that that start their projects with rails because it still fits pretty well. Uh, you know, that it's not the right tool for every single thing for sure. And so once you understand why you would grab node or whether you grab closure or Elixir or whatever it might be that you want to grab, um, you you know, to do that, you know, why? And, um, a lot of times it's based on, okay, what's your team? What do they want to work in? You know, what's the, uh, uh, you know, if you're handing this off, like from a consultancy to, you know, a company, you know, what's their team like, what can they handle? Um, Mm. and so I think, I think all that's, you know, that all plays into the fact I, I wouldn't get too worried about, you know, new language being popular. I think it's a healthy thing that you see, you know, is there something that's being done, in a new way over there that we should incorporate. And that's the neat thing about uh, Rails. And, I mean, Ruby is pretty good as a language, although they're constantly adding little things, and and Rails as well. So, you know, Rails keeps adapting and saying, you know, here's this new way of working with our apps. So it's kind of keeping up, but it's not changing everything. So there's certain things that you you would just go with a different framework entirely uh, than Rails because, um, you know, it doesn't do... Uh, is not his strength, isn't what this new approach might be,
0: yeah. And so, another angle of this conversation is the coding boot camp angle. Like, we did all these shows about coding boot camps, as you mentioned, and uh, I feel like you know, maybe two thirds of them do all JavaScript and then one third of them do Rails. Uh, I'm not sure if that's an accurate proportion at all, just um, back of the envelope, maybe, but uh, for new developers, like what are the trade offs between these two? Well, I think like, a, that, l- like a new developer entering coding bootcamp, should he pursue or she pursue a, a Rails bootcamp or a JavaScript bootcamp?
1: Um, yeah, that's an excellent question. I think that, uh, that Rails and Ruby is a little easier and friendlier to learn and a little more pleasant to work with. Uh, ecosystems a little more mature, but the thing is you're going to, you can't avoid JavaScript. So I could see that if you're only going to learn one language, then you're probably best off doing JavaScript initially. I think it's good though for newer developers to learn two. I mean, get good at one first so that you understand, but, and I, I, I would lean towards Ruby still, um, because I think there's things that you still, it's still worth doing that. Even if you end up writing more Node or whatnot, I think there's still, like, the learning to program aspect is good in Ruby, and it's a more pleasant experience starting off. I mean, I think JavaScript will get there. Um, JavaScript's a lot, I mean, I don't want to say younger, but I mean, if you think about sort of how JavaScript is now, that way of being is fairly young compared to other Language ecosystems, and they'll get there. And they'll certainly they're making it better. Um, I do know um, that, uh, and I don't do much Node, so I can't speak a ton about that. But I do know that when I have done some of that, and when I have worked with npm and stuff, I've been a little disappointed by how often things break. And it's like I'm fighting the 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 toolset, and I'm fighting all the dependencies and the libraries more often than I would in the Ruby world or in other language ecosystems. And I think that's okay. I mean, I think after a while you're like, really, you know, I guess my morning is shot because I need to, sh- to troubleshoot this one thing and fix it that just has to do with my build tool and has nothing to do with actual application. <laughs> it's now something upgraded and something broke and now, you know, I'm, I'm chasing down what's, what's the problem. I think that's actually a good experience to have. I mean, as a developer you're going to face that at some point. So I don't think hiding from it is bad. But then if you, I don't know, if you have that experience too often as a new programmer, maybe that's a little disheartening. I don't know. No, I... It, it's it's. I'm not sure. Um, but I think it's important that, you know, you, you're going to have to face that anyway. So that's where I might lean towards the stability of Rails as kind of getting your feet wet and getting good at it. And then, you know, and then moving more into JavaScript. And then you can decide, now you have two options, right? As you look for jobs or as you work on projects, you're comfortable in both. But that's the best of both worlds. And then you can even move into a third language if you find a shop that wants to work in Clojure or Elixir or some other, you know, maybe maybe Java or .NET or, you know, <laughs> something like that. You might go and you have all those experiences already.
0: Yeah. So, um begin to close off i want to talk a little bit about your some of your biographical background you used to be a musician and an audio engineer um so i mean uh i'm, I'm curious like what your experience was like i um i, I also i write a lot of electronic music so i'm f- familiar with like digital audio workstations and kind of that workflow and stuff so um how did you pivot to, to software engineering? And did you, find, did you find the movement to software engineering to be a natural transformation from your work as a musician and audio engineer?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. So the, um, I mean, and, and earlier on, I actually was in the Army. So right after high school, I never went to college. That's something so fascinating. To, to, to put out there. So I'm not, I, I picked up programming and all the computer stuff by myself on my own. You know, self-taught. So, uh, put that out there. So, the I went. I went. Uh, just, a, I was going to be an aeronautical engineer out of high school. I actually, had a uh, won a scholarship, a, a full ride to Wichita State University, and was going to do that. I, was, I grew up in Kansas, and so that was a local state school that was uh, fairly good at aeronautical engineering, and I was going to do that. So, I had the engineering mind already. So, I do want to put that out there that I that I felt comfortable with that, and I had been using computers in various sorts as a kid. A lot of Amiga, I will say, because we loved those Amiga games back in the 80s. And it was great. Uh, but um, the uh, so I went in the Army. And so that was a very interesting experience. And I got out because I just didn't feel it was the right fit for me. I, I enjoyed my time in and, and serving my country and all that. But I, I wanted to pursue being a musician, which I had been a musician in high school, but not really not in bands and not. Uh, going after it. But I decided to do that. I played a little bit in the army with some army buddies, and then I went to music school. and um, and I went ahead and got uh, it was a contemporary music school, so it wasn't a college degree kind of thing. It was it's accredited now, but it wasn't back then. And I learned to be a professional musician, and I played in some bands, and I had a lot of fun with that. I discovered, though, that it's pretty tough to make money um, <sighs> with as a musician. I, and I did have some paying gigs where I'd come on as a, and I was a bass player. I'd come on in and they would need me to read some charts and whatever and kind of fill in for somebody who's sick and I would earn maybe 75 bucks for the night or something like that. It was, it was decent money that way. I was certainly, um, it, it was better than, you know, my other alternatives that I was aware of at that point. And I, in then the bands that I was in that we had our own music, it was always tricky because we were investing everything into the band. So the band, whenever we made money for gigs, you know, very little if any would ever come out to us to pay our own stuff so it was always back into the band paying for the next record we we're gonna record and it was a lot of fun i i found that musicians generally were pretty flaky and lack discipline it was uh i i am like that is also active. my experience that like, is what? absolutely like, this is a thing this is it really a thing i mean that not all of them but there's, some, there's enough and like Dude, this is your band. You called for this practice. How can you not even show up? Yeah. Like, it would just have floored me. And um, I also, during this time, um, because I actually did need to make money and pay my bills, I worked at this music school that I, that I graduated from. And audio engineering, real quick as an aside, um... That was, I really liked it. I loved working in the studio and yeah. I found it was very um, is, is satisfying to sort of my problem solving engineering mindset. Whereas being a musician, I loved it, but you know, there's like maybe two thirds or three quarters of myself that was not truly engaged <laughs> there. Uh, yeah. and so I, I liked having that aspect. So um, but the thing with audio engineering is that your jobs initially are pretty, you know, you learn, you're like coffee boy and cable <laughs> wrapper you know you don't even need to set the mics no but you can run the cables and you can kind of set things up but you of course you don't do mic placement and maybe yeah. you'll get this like start working on setting some gates and compression and whatnot yeah but you know you won't be touching the board that's for like first or second engineer to do that and eventually you can work your way up but that might be two or three years before you would even be given any kind of real responsibility the other alternative of course is that you go freelance And like try to recruit brands to record them. And then you go in the studio with them and be their engineer. And, but that, you know, that's like, you know, going freelance and building your own business. So it's a little scary that way. So that's a little aside. So, so neither of those opportunities were very good from a a financial situation initially. And that's okay. Um, So during this time I was working at the school and I did a number of things I did. I worked in the resource lab. And one of the things we had to do was take care of all the computers and I learned very quickly that I knew more about computers than anybody at the school. And so I started doing all their IT work and such. And then, of course, it led to some website work. And so I started doing website stuff for them. And I just pick it up like, oh, well, we need to do a website. Well, let's figure out how we do this. And I go grab a book on HTML or whatever. And I read it. I'm like, well, this makes sense. That's okay. This is markup. Okay. I, you know, I, I just figured it out. And, um, and from there, I left because I, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I um, I guess I'd heard that IT professionals were paid like 12 bucks an hour or something like that. Now he's being paid like minimum wage. And I'm like, I'd be paid more. I'm like, this is great. This is like 95 or so, so um, 96. And so then I, I then decide, they, they weren't interested in paying me more. Like, oh, why should we pay you more? And they're just working on computers. <laughs> like, what? Uh, but, but my industries paid more and they weren't interested in that. So then I went and started being like kind of like a, a network admin, uh, sort of level one tech support kind of person and just mm-hmm. helped you know, plug computers and get them working on a network and stuff like that. Um, and then I also continued to work with the web stuff. And then I got my first gig in 97 at Digital River where I was doing a, a mixture of, of HTML and working with their e-commerce platform, basically as data entry and helping people to, um, you know, create their custom storefronts in Digital River because it was an e-commerce outfit pretty early on. And I've from there, you know, I started, was fascinated by programming. So I started reading more about it. And I also was really good at troubleshooting and, and identifying their problems. I was really good at hunting down bugs, basically being QA. I was QA in a way. And I was really good. And I'd go back to their engineers, and I'd say, hey, I noticed this thing. I noticed this behavior. And it looks like only when I do this that it happens. And they're like, oh, that's right. Well, and I'd help them kind of troubleshoot it. And so I could start just seeing the code they were working with. And then I thought that was very cool. I'm like, this is really cool stuff. So I just tried to pick up more and more of it. And eventually they let me switch over to client applications where I was actually doing more real programming. And so from there, I just you know kept learning a new technology and getting good at it, asking questions, talking to lots of other engineers and, you know, pretty much just stepping stones from there until I got to where I, at some point I realized, you know, actually I can pretty much do everything on a project And I'm not scared of that. Like there's maybe early on, there's a fear of like, Hey, computer science. Oh, wow. You have to go to school for that. Right. Really hard, Uh really difficult. And you, you know, you certainly, if you don't go to college, there's no way you can do it. Uh I had that mentality. But then as I was like, look at stuff like, no, I mean, yeah, you didn't have the resources back then that you have now. Like you couldn't Google things. Google didn't even exist, but you know you could still kind of just figure stuff out and like grab a book on some language and start to you know solve it yourself and then yeah. you realize wow actually this i mean it is hard i don't want to say it's not hard but it's not all that is as hard as you might have thought and so i i get to this point where i wasn't afraid anymore i'm like I'm going to figure this out, and I might get my butt kicked by <laughs> not being able to solve a problem, but I'm certainly going to give it a shot, and yeah. more often than not, I found that I could figure out a solution, or at least find somebody who could help me solve it, and I would learn,
0: oh, okay, I see,
1: oh, okay, I see how that thing happened, or whatever it was.
0: Yeah. Well, that's great. That's a really interesting um, history, winding winding history to uh, <laughs> to programming. Um, right. Well, awesome. Well, Marty Hot. Thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. It's, it's been really interesting talking to you about yeah. Ruby and communities. And Yeah.
1: Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's been fun.